We're continuing our little series in the book of Ruth, the Bible book of Ruth. Last week we looked at the first of the three major characters there, uh, Naomi. Uh, She was the wife of an Israelite man, Elimelech, who with their children left Bethlehem in time of famine to go to Moab, a place that God said they shouldn't have gone to. And they should have trusted God even in times where there was fruitlessness. But they decided they would go. And Elimelech in time died when they were in the place of Moab. Their sons took wives of the people of Moab. And in time their sons died. And Naomi is left with her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, both of the people of Moab. And they're left destitute because they have nothing. And Naomi decides, because she has heard that God has been gracious to his people, that uh, she must go back to Judah, to Bethlehem, where their family inheritance is. And she sets off with her two daughters-in-law. And she realizes that there's nothing for them back there. Or so she thinks. So she persuades them both to go back to the people that they know, their own people in Moab, to stay and to enjoy them. Orpah. She does return, but Ruth goes with her, and we're going to read that in a moment, because today our focus is going to be on Ruth, and she's a refugee. And the reason I mention this again, and uh, I mentioned something of this last week, is our world is a place where there are many people that are forcibly displaced. Uh, The UNHCR figures for 2014 said that 60 million people on our planet in that year, in the 12 months, were displaced either as refugees or internally displaced within their own country, or asylum seekers trying to escape a regime or a circumstance that threatened their lives. June, the month we're in, is actually uh, World Refugee Awareness Month. And tomorrow, the 20th of June, is not only my wife's birthday, but it is also World Refugee Day. And uh, I think it's no coincidence that we're looking at the Book of Ruth with its focus on people who are displaced because of circumstances. And our awareness has been heightened ourselves here in Europe because we're told that in 2015 there were just under 2 million people came into the European area from the countries surrounding and in Africa and the Middle East. They've been displaced because of the situations in their countries and they've come flooding out because of oppression and persecution and the longing for something better than what has been spoiled back in their countries. And the majority of those refugees have come from Syria. Now, we're very thankful to God as Christians that there are so many agencies, many of them Christian agencies, and there are individuals as well that are actively um, involved in bringing relief and assistance right where the people are. And we're very thankful for them. God expects us as Christians, talking to ourselves first, um, to respond in love towards people in predicament, to do our part to alleviate suffering and to actively demonstrate his love in a world that's so full of pain. And it's going to come closer to us. We may feel isolated here uh, as we are in Manchester, so seemingly geographically far removed from where the circumstances are at its sharpest uh, on the eastern borders of the uh, European Uh, countries there but we're not to sit back and do nothing our hearts respond to what we see on the news and we can certainly do something as Christians we can pray 
of course, for people in circumstances like that. But we can dig deep into the finances that God has blessed us with and give that wisely for the alleviation of suffering. That's a challenge that should be there. And if our hearts are prompted to do it, I would say we must respond to that along with everything else. But it is going to come closer to us. And that's why I think looking at the example of Ruth is so important for us. It's going to come closer to us because even now, some of those who have fled their countries are moving into our local communities. And we're to greet them as God greets them in love. And to welcome them in a way that we'll see as we read from the book of Ruth that we should. Which is in God's grace and his mercy. He will lovingly welcome everyone to himself. Because as Christians we are the means by which God's blessing and grace will touch the lives of others. As believers in the Lord Jesus who have received the grace of God for ourselves. We're not to keep it to ourselves. In fact a true Christian cannot. Because their life is changed, as we'll see in the experience of Ruth. The life is changed so that it becomes a life of self-sacrifice. And a life of love that's motivated by the love of God. That it will touch other people in whatever their circumstances, whatever their background. And we will do what our God motivates us to do for his glory. Why do we do that? Because God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, has shown us what it is to intervene so actively and positively in love and grace. And because Jesus Christ came here from the glories of heaven, he came here into humanity. He himself, as a young child, experiencing what it was like to be forcibly displaced because of Herod's murderous attempts to kill the children, fleeing into Egypt with his family to come back. Our God is not immune to suffering. He knows all about it. And Jesus Christ, in his very death, went into the suffering of humanity so that he might bring hope into it. That's why, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christians, we're called to live this way and to respond to people who don't know God in this way. And it may be people from other cultures and other backgrounds who will come to us as they're forcibly displaced. Their hope is gone. And they're looking for something. We welcome them with the love of God. And we share with them the God who loves them so much. We have this book of Ruth and it focuses on refugees. And in particular Ruth the Moabitess. And I want us to look at her now. Remembering all the time that over the whole of the little book. That's here in our Bibles. That we can see that one that God is always at work. That God is not a hands off God. As many religions in the world would say, that maybe there's a God who's made everything, but he's not actively involved in it. That is not the case with the God of Christianity, the true God. He is always at work, whatever the desperate or joyful circumstances of people might be. And if we see that, we accept it by faith and it transforms our lives. Secondly, we see that God is, yes, in sovereign control of all things, because he is honouring His promises of the things that he has said he will do for people. He has said and revealed who he is and what he will do for those who trust him. And as he sovereignly acts in our world with people who respond and see that. Then they enjoy the blessings of God. And that's the third thing that we see in this book of Ruth. That those who trust in God. Who honours faithfully his promises. Who is always working. 
They have a hopefulness that transcends life with all of its difficulties because none of us is immune uh, to what life brings to us. Because those who know their God know that he is absolutely reliable when everything else might fall away. That's what we see as a summary in the book of Ruth. Will you do some readings with me now, please? Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be rereading some portions we touched on last week, but trying to move into others. Our focus is on Ruth. We're going to look at the things that we can learn about Ruth and the things that we learn from Ruth that can apply to us in our lives today. She's here in God's word as an example. So the book of Ruth, chapter 1 and verse 15. In fact, let's read from verse 14. It says, And they lifted up their voices and wept again. That's Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then Naomi said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you, for where you go I will go, and where you lodge I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Verse 22. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Please let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after one in whose sight I may find favour. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she appeared, happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, May the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? The servant in charge of the reapers replied, She is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather among the reapers and among the sheaves. Thus she came and she has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go and glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favour in your sight, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz replied to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. And how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. Then she said, I have found favour in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like one of your maidservants. 
At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here, that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain. And she ate and was satisfied and had some left. When she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servant, saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not insult her. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. She took it up and went into the city and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also took it out and gave Naomi what she had after she was satisfied. Chapter 3 and verse 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you, that it may be well with you? Now, is not Boaz our kinsman with whose maids you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will tell you what he shall do. She said to her, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor, did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded her. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward. And behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown your last kindness to be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. Now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask, for all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now it is true, I am a close relative, however. There is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes... If he will redeem you good, let him redeem you. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. And over to chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and is better to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. So from these scattered readings from the book, what do we learn about Ruth? The first thing we learn is that she's a Moabite. In the section we didn't read in chapter 1, and I've summarized it at the very beginning, the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi, they take, daughter, they take wives from the daughters of Moab, as it's described. Now that's a problem. <clears throat> well, I'll get to that problem in a moment. But here she is, she's coming back, and she's a Moabite. She's coming back. The reason I'm saying she's coming back is because that verse tells us at the end of chapter 1 that she returned from the land of Moab. She's not just coming back geographically because she's probably never been before. She's returning because she comes to realize in herself that she is far from God and she wants to go after the God of Naomi. She's returning. So she's coming back. 
She's returning. She's coming to the place where God is and blessing his people. And she's coming and she's a Moabite. Now, God in his law has said two things to encourage his people to welcome people like this. But he also said something very particularly about Moabites. That meant they had to be careful. Listen to Deuteronomy 10 verse 19 where God says to his people in his law. He says once you get into the land and God gives you the inheritance. Show your love for the foreigner. And he says it's inevitable that you're going to have them. People from other places show your love. And it was in the context of him, God, showing his love to his people. He says, you show love to the foreigner. In Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 33, God said, when a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. God tells his people, you knew what it was like to live in a place that was not your true home. So when foreigners come and they're part of um, the activity of the people of God in what they're doing and they're coming and they're looking for help, he says you welcome them and you love them as I have loved you. That lesson comes to us today as well. But listen to what God says in Deuteronomy 23. He says no Ammonite or Moabite shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of their descendants, even to the tenth generation, shall ever enter the assembly of the Lord because they did not meet you with food and water when you came out of Egypt and because they hired against you Balaam the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. You shall never seek their peace or their prosperity all your days. Last week we mentioned that the family should not have gone to Moab. They were pagan uh, worshippers of the god Chemosh, the destroyer, which demanded in some cases that they would sacrifice their, their own children as burnt offerings. They weren't to go there. These Moabites were people who had not helped the people of Israel as they would pass through on their way to the, the promised land from Egypt. Didn't meet them with food and water, but they went further than that. Their king at that time called for this man who was a self-proclaimed prophet to come and pronounce curses on the people. And he couldn't curse Balaam. He couldn't curse them. And because God overruled and the blessing became a curse. But Numbers 25 tells us that the people of Moab and the Ammonites with them, despite what Balaam had done being a blessing, it says that the people themselves enticed the children of Israel, the people of Israel into idolatry and sin and the sexual immorality that was associated with that. And 24,000 people of the nation died because of that. God's judgment came on them. It was for that reason that God said, you'll not let an Ammonite and a Moabite become part of the assembly. If they were coming and they were the strangers, the foreigners, they were to be greeted with love. Yes, that's there in God's law. But there's a point at which you'll keep them away. That's there, I think, in Deuteronomy 23. I think we have to put those two together. And God says you will welcome people and and do good for them, of course. But there comes a point at which those who are against the things of God, they can come no further. So Ruth's in a predicament here. She's leaving behind all that she knows in Moab. 
And she's putting her all in with Naomi and with the God that she has heard Naomi speaking about. And she takes this journey to Judah. That's what we learn, firstly, about Ruth. That she has a problem because she's a Moabite. Secondly, she's childless. The reading earlier in chapter 1 gives the impression that she was likely married to Mahlon, her husband, for 10 years. And as a young woman married to a young man in that setting, in those days, children were the sign of prosperity and heirs were the thing that were to be the product and the focus of a marriage. That's what it was about. But after 10 years, there was no child. Maybe that was God intervening and preventing um, in that situation because of Matlon's failure to trust in the faithfulness of God and to take a Moabite wife. There's no children there. It's an honour and shame society. And that still persists in many regions of the world and in the Middle East as well. So she comes with the shame of that, having had no children. She's a Moabite and she has no children. She comes with shame. Not only that, she's destitute and therefore vulnerable. So as she arrives with Naomi, Naomi has something. She still has a claim to a piece of land. She has something. But she's so poverty stricken that she's needing someone to buy the land so that she might be able to have enough money just to survive. But Ruth is coming. And as a Moabite who will not be welcomed into the fullness of the blessings of God's people according to the law of God because of their pagan idolatry and their history. And because she's childless, it's unlikely that anyone is ever going to take her. She's, she's distancing herself from potential marriage. She's coming and she's destitute, no children, nobody to provide for because in that society the men would provide for the women. She's coming and she's vulnerable. Vulnerable as, as one who is a Moabite. Now, people take the law of God quite often and will twist it. Many of the Israelites would have ignored those things that God had said that you're to love the foreigner. Instead, they would jump on the fact that she was a Moabite and use that as a reason for abuse. We're to have no part in anything like that ourselves. So she's a Moabite, she's childless, um, she's destitute and vulnerable. What a predicament this woman's in. But she's willing to leave everything in order to pursue and obey God. And this is vital. She makes her own spiritual return. As I've said, that's Ruth 1 verse 22 verse. So Naomi returned and with her Ruth the Moabite Tess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. She had come to realise through the testimony of Naomi, I believe, as I claimed last week. She had come to appreciate that the God of the people of Israel, Naomi's God, was the only true God. And she was prepared to throw in everything and cling, as we read in our first verse in our reading together, to cling to Naomi. And in so doing, express her desire to cling not only to who Naomi was, but for who Naomi's God was for her. Your people shall be my people. Your God shall be my God. What a declaration of faith, having come from a background and an upbringing involved in pagan idolatry, for which God had judged the people and would continue to judge them. She comes out of that to a realisation that through Naomi, God is great, the God of Israel. So she leaves Moab, leaving behind all the opportunity that would have given her to go after God. 
We also learn from our reading that she's hardworking and self-sacrificing. This comes after she's arrived. God had made a provision for uh, the foreigners. It's interesting in the law that God said that when you go and you, uh, you harvest your, your fields, if grain falls at the edges, don't pick it up. You leave it there. And there's three groups of disadvantaged people that are mentioned. And God, in priority, puts the alien or the foreigner first. The foreigner, the orphan, and the widow. Those who are in serious predicament, God says, you'll leave enough for them to glean around the edges. So Ruth says, let me go and glean. It's all she can do, she thinks. And she goes and she picks up the little bits. And then Boaz steps in and takes notice. I so want to get to Boaz, but we're getting there next week in the Lord's will. So she's hard working. She's hard working because it says she works all day. She's taken a rest in the house. She has an interaction with Boaz. Because of Boaz's favour, it says that she takes home to Naomi an ephah of barley. That's a lot of barley. It's not what a normal um, person who was just simply gleaning at the edges of the field would enjoy. She went back with a blessing that had come because of what Boaz had done for her. But she's hard working. She beat it out. She took it home. Self-sacrificing. Do you notice that Boaz gave her some of the roasted grain in that little interaction? She had enough to satisfy herself. And I think the text afterwards says that she took of what was left and gave it to Naomi. I think she took some of that special portion that she'd received from Boaz and took it back to Naomi. She's thinking after Naomi. She has such regard for the woman who is her mother-in-law, who has brought her face to face with the God of Israel, the God of all of the universe. She is self-sacrificing. She's working hard to bring it to her mother-in-law. Not only that, I touched on this last week, she knows that Naomi knows the law of God and that there's this business of the redemption of the land and also something to do with uh, marriage where an heir could be raised up for Naomi through her. She has that in the back of her mind. We'll get to there next week, I think. The sixth thing that I, I want us to, to look at, that's six, that's only five, that's six. Um, she's the talk of the town. And it's positive talk because she has a fine reputation. You notice what Boaz says when he asks, who's the young woman? And they say, she's, she's the one who came up with Naomi from Moab. She's the Moabitess. Point her out, it's the Moabitess. There's a little bit of a hint of um, maybe something that's there. She's not one of us. Boaz goes and shows her grace and generosity. And her response is loving. Why have you done this for me since I'm a foreigner? Why have you made me like one of your maids? She's brought into uh, more of a, an opportunity to take more from the ground than just the simple poor person gleaning at the edges. She's brought her right in to follow after the reapers and to pick up and enjoy the fullness of that blessing. She says, why have you made me like one of your maids, even though I'm not like your maidservants? She knows she's different. But Boaz says, I've heard about all that you have done for Naomi, your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband. And then you have that little interaction later on when she comes in the night time and uncovers Boaz's feet and lies down and asks him it's effectively a marriage proposal we'll get to there next week a marriage proposal put put your um, cover me with your cloak be the one to to step in here and bring us out of this poverty 
What's Boaz's response which tells us about who Ruth is? He says, my people in this city, he says, my people in this city know that you're a woman of excellence. So here we have a wonderful picture of a woman who has a problem with being a Moabite. That's just by very heritage. She's childless. There's a shame associated with that. She's destitute, has nobody to provide for her, vulnerable with it. She will put her all into pursuing this God that she's heard about through Naomi. She also is the talk of the town in Bethlehem. People are talking about her because her character is something so fine. She's a woman of excellence. Now that word for excellence, I'll just pass this on. That word for excellence is the same word that's used for describing Boaz. Um, he's excellent too. Um, here's a compatibility thing in God's purposes. They're a perfect match. He's excellent, she's excellent. Um, marriage that honours God is more than physical attraction. On to that in a moment, maybe. And the th- last thing we learn, the concluding section of our reading, she becomes an ancestor of Jesus Christ ultimately. We're not told that, but we know it because we go to Matthew chapter 1 and the genealogy, the, the list of the ascendants that lead to the, the person of Jesus Christ. Obed. Jesse, David, the great king. She's brought into God's purposes in a wonderful way and is an ancestor of the Lord Jesus himself through a God-glorifying marriage. No doubt that summary of who the person is, and that's not touching on everything, is enough for us to draw lessons out for ourselves. But I I just want to mention some lessons just in, in closing here, just as a challenge to us. We see God is working in all of this, of course. But we see in Ruth something that is very desirable for those who put their trust and their all into who God is. That's what she's done. What I think is wonderful in all this is God's grace. Firstly, that God accepts a genuine, heartfelt declaration of faith, whatever a person's background, history and heritage. God had said, you'll not bring a Moabite into the assembly. You'll not bring them into the full functioning of the people of God. You'll not do that. But here is a woman who has that heritage of being a Moabite. And because of her declaration to Naomi, but made before God, your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. And may the Lord do to me if nothing but death will part us. She's absolutely given to this. God He honours a declaration of faith from people, whatever their background. Maybe it's speaking of end times, but Isaiah 56, uh, verse 3 onwards. God says, let the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me. Let not, sorry, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Is that fear? The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, even those I will bring to my holy mountain, I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. God says that a foreigner who comes and comes to appreciate God for who he is, an enemy of the people of God, an enemy of God, one who comes and embraces God for who he is, is brought right in to the opportunities that are afforded to God's people to be part of that which is worshipped to him. That's there in scripture. 
And the Bible tells us for all of us have sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. We're all God's enemies. In effect, we're all like Ruth. We're all from Moab, a place where we would prefer other things to God. But God in his grace has come in the person of his son. And he says, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast them out. The wonderful message of the grace of God is that he accepts a heartfelt, genuine declaration of faith. You will be my God because you have given yourself for me. Second lesson that maybe we can learn from Ruth is that God absolutely honours those who obey him. And that's a result of salvation. (coughs) Jesus spoke of obeying the Son in the matter of salvation. He who believes in the Son um, will have life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John 3 verse 36. So obedience is brought into the matter of um, salvation. What is it? What is this obedience? It's not that we achieve salvation, but it's that we obey the God who has said, my son, Jesus Christ, he is the one through whom salvation comes to you because he is the sin bearer on your behalf. Obedience to the word of God is what brings us into salvation. So that's the beginning of obedience to God. But we see from this that God honors obedience to him because Ruth comes to take hold of Naomi, yes, and to take hold of the people of God and to take hold of God himself. She does that. And she's saying, what God says I will do. She takes hold of the promises of God. We see that in it. And she does the things that are pleasing to God. She faces rejection. She faces abuse. She faces risk to her own life. All of this is implicit in her obedience to the God that she's come to know through Naomi in her coming to Judah and to Bethlehem to a people that she doesn't know. Boaz says, you've come to a people you don't even know. You've left your family. You've left uh, all that's part of your culture and your heritage and you've come here. She was obeying God, honouring him and God honoured her. And because he turned her shameful, destitute situation into something so glorious through the man that was provided, Boaz. Wonderful outflow at the end of it. For some people, maybe the cost of obeying God is too much. And they sit there and they weigh it up. And that potential to lose friends and family and standing in society and all sorts of things can prevent them putting their all in with God. You know, there's no risk involved at all. Those of us who know the Lord Jesus as Saviour and know that God is for us in him, we've taken hold of him and realise that everything that he is is so much greater than anything this word can give us. And I'm not minimising for a moment the importance and the value of friendships and relationships and so on. But God is greater than it all. And he's shown us how much he values our relationship with us by giving his son to die for us. Isaiah 28 verse 16 which is quoted three times in the New Testament which means it's an important scripture. It says he who believes in him will not be disappointed. So those who believe in God and obey the things that he has said in the matter of salvation and the things that flow out of that will never be disappointed. The third thing that I think we learn is that God provides for those who trust him in ways they could never imagine. Ruth 
as someone who had never had a child, was facing a life of destitute um, poverty in a place that she didn't know, could not have imagined what God was going to do in her circumstances. And for those of us who come from the same place, in the poverty of our sin, when we come face to face with all that God has done and God will do, we're in awe of who God is, and that's the reason why we worship. He does things that we just cannot imagine. Notice that Boaz said to her, May the Lord reward your work, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz knew that she had come to be under the protection and the love and the blessing of God. Jesus said this of the people of Jerusalem. How often I wanted to gather your children, Jerusalem, the way a hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Let's not be people who were in that same uh, group of people that the Lord was thinking of, who refused to come to him to enjoy all of the blessings of his protection because he gives more than can ever be imagined. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. That's for this life and for eternity. God gives us more than we can imagine when we trust him and live a life of obedience for him. We also learn through Ruth that God delights in self-sacrificing love and the associated good reputation that that brings. She gave herself fully for the benefit of Naomi. We respond as God would have us to. In our circumstances today, it means that our lives will be touching others and will have a good reputation before other people. In the Proverbs, the wise man said, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. It's over and above everything. And what good name do we carry? As Christians, we carry the name of Christ. It's not my name. It's his. And Ruth here is an example of someone who has taken the name of God and she lives it out for Naomi and for others. It's through this that God is glorified on the earth. We learn from this that a good reputation, a name that declares the name of Christ is the means by which God is glorified and the lives of others are touched by his grace and his mercy. Jesus said himself to his disciples, John 14 and 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to the Father. He was speaking of how our lives can touch so many other people for God, as we would share his grace, as we would share the gospel, the good news of who he is for those in the predicament of their sin. And finally, we learn that God's direct intervention in someone's life will have repercussions for generations. When God takes hold of your life, as he did with Ruth, and you by faith take hold of him, and you live to obey him, he brings about in our experience repercussions that go on for eternity. You see it in Ruth. She gives birth to Obed, who gives birth to Jesse, well, his wife does. She gives birth to David. And all the way down to Christ, the Son of God who became Son of Man. So that the greatest blessing could come to humanity as the grace of God would flow to us through him. What eternal repercussions have come from one who put her all in to go after God. May we be encouraged to do the same. Let's pray. Our God, please help us with these things that we might learn from the life of Ruth and your intervention and sovereign overruling in all things help us to see you 
Help us to see the things of Christ as well that should be evident in our lives. That self-sacrificing love, that hard work, that love for others, that welcome and that working so that others would know your grace. Please, our God, help us to learn these things from Ruth. We thank you that she is a woman of excellence. We would ask, please, that as your grace would envelop us in our lives, that we too would be known as people of excellence, not because of who we are, but because of what you've made us in Christ Jesus. Help us to live this life, we pray. In his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.